Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who help us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. This interview is with artist Constantine Semiramis, also known as Anthromorph on Instagram. Constantine is Greek, but now mostly lives and works in London. They're best known for their mask creations that are inspired by animals and nature, but are often read as otherworldly and alien. Constantine posts videos and photos of themselves performatively wearing their masks and embodying these creatures to Instagram, which has gained their Anthromorph account a large following. In this interview, Constantine talks about their artistic inspiration, as well as how the masks connect to their gender dysphoria. Here we get deep and philosophical. Constantine is a natural philosopher and one of the most articulate and eloquent people I know. They talk about growing up in a Greek Orthodox environment, their love of science and nature, and their relationship with hyperfemininity. I've put some links in the show notes to Constantine's Instagram and also links that provide more information on some of the topics and statistics we discuss if you wanted to learn more. This was my very first podcast recording done in November 2022 when Constantine was 24 years old, which you'll find surprising because they seem to have lived multiple lives and have endless wisdom. It was an absolute honour to have Constantine as my first guest. This conversation starts with us talking about Constantine flying back to Greece the next day. And how long do you think you'll be back for? I think one month or two months, depending on work. Okay, so you're not going to be moving back there for good. I have been considering it just because London has progressively been becoming more and more hostile, I would say, and difficult to be in as a city, especially after Brexit. There is no support for working class people anymore. Mm -hmm. Everything is very orientated and geared towards money, consumption, and it's just escalating. It's interesting to see that there is no stop to it. It seems quite dystopian and it can be disheartening in terms of revolutionary politics to see such nothing is progressing really everything has mm. been very stagnant we're almost going backwards yeah that's what it feels like yeah 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 and like trans healthcare is being reversed all over the world so many politics that had to do with the body are being challenged it's an interesting point to observe why would politicians choose to attack identity politics and weaponize identity politics when what we should be focusing on is the unequal redistribution of wealth, yeah, just class struggle. And yeah. I think identity politics is a very good mechanism to push people away from thinking about class, which is something that unifies all of us, no matter your gender, no matter your age, no matter your race. It's something that affects everyone. And in my opinion, identity politics can act as a way of keeping people away from thinking about that. When Yeah, like distraction. Mm -hmm. Keep everyone distracted so they don't protest or revolt. Yeah. You're so eloquent the way that you speak about these topics and politics. You're very intellectual and academic, I would say. Thank you. But you told me that you learned English when you were 15. Yeah. Which is amazing because you're so fluent. Can you tell me a bit more about growing up in Greece and yeah. what was that like? So I grew up in a very conservative area. Greece is a Christian Orthodox. Religion had a big influence on social norms, social expectations. People are really traumatized by this need to be socially accepted in order to get married. My grandparents had arranged marriages. Oh, wow. So up until two generations ago, especially in the islands, people... Like that your social image was very important and you being normative and appropriate was crucial to your survival in the future because it meant that you could get married to someone above your status. So then you would progress socially. Were your grandparents, or if they're still with us, are they still with us? Yeah, 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 they're still alive. Were they happily married? That is a question they would never answer, <laughs> like, honestly. It was an arranged marriage. It's quite traumatic. Like, one of my grandmothers only knew my granddad for 15 days before they got married. That's terrifying. And she was 16 to 17 at the time. 
And that's just two generations ago. And it's luck of the draw, isn't it? If you get a nice person or not, really. Mm -hmm. And divorce was not an option. So you couldn't do that. You just had to deal with your life. So I'm an interesting subject because I am one of the first generation that grew up with the internet. A lot of people that grow up in Greece and they didn't have the influence of the internet, didn't develop politically and didn't develop as global citizens, I would say. I think growing up online taught me a lot about global politics. It trained my English because I spend a lot of time reading English texts. On... So were you kind of on blogs, Tumblr? Tumblr was the one for me. Right. And you just spent a lot of your youth kind of on these sites and they informed you of everything else that was happening in the world. Exactly. They They gave me references I couldn't have had otherwise. I was able to see non-binary people from a very young age. I was able to engage with trans discourse that was not informed by transphobia, but rather trans individuals that were in, like, you like know. Like a celebration. Exactly. Yeah. And it's very important to point out that a lot of queer kids, because it's not safe to physically be out, it leads you to socially exploring yourself digitally. Mm -hmm. So in the cyber world, no matter if you come from a small town in Athens, you can be non-binary and you can wear makeup even if it's in the privacy of your room and your parents know nothing about it. Mm. Um, and it's safe. It's a safe queer space because you're not vulnerable to violence and discrimination in the same way. You know, you're not vulnerable to attacks, mm -hmm. but you are vulnerable to cyber attacks, I guess. Did you yeah. experience any of that? A few, but they didn't phase me so much. I think also something really interesting is the aspect of observation. So how Foucault's panopticon theory talks about conformity when it comes to being observed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's Foucault's, he had sort of an analogy of a prison, didn't he, with a tower in the middle of a circular prison where prisoners would know that there were potentially at all times guards looking out at them, but they didn't know this for sure because they couldn't see into the middle of the tower. So this idea that Foucault talked about, if you feel like you might constantly be being watched, then you behave. And I think he kind of explored that in terms of the gaze as well, the feeling of being watched and how that makes you behave. Mm -hmm. So online, it's much easier to play around with that gaze. And when the heteronormative gaze is not on you, it's much easier for you to express suppressed behaviors that your physical surrounding and socialization might have dictated as inappropriate. So what kind of images were you producing and, and publishing on there? In the beginning, I wasn't doing art. It was mainly just myself wearing a bit of makeup and having a non-binary kind of look. It became more prominent to me as years passed by that I had to start hormones and my ideal expression would be feminine. But digital space for me was always the testing ground mm -hmm. for this behaviors I later on integrated into my self-expression. And how old were you when you realized that you wanted to start taking feminizing hormones? I think I was 20 years old. So it took me coming to the UK for university and having lectures about gender theory, performativity, Things like this really informed and made me restructure how I was perceiving gender because mm -hmm. I realized I was coming from a very conservative upbringing. I had a lot of internalized queer phobia. How did that manifest? I think it manifested in self-hate and self-shame. I just didn't want to acknowledge these behaviors for a long time. Even though you'd been kind of experimenting on Tumblr before then? Yeah, even then, I think I was very attached to the idea that I was a boy. I think going all the way to the other side of the binary seemed too rebellious. So in a way, it was it brought out a lot of shame. So do you feel that you still want to move, the, like you say, the other end of that spectrum of gender mm -hmm. and have a more femme expression? Or has that changed? I think the more like being socialized as a male, your perception of femaleness, I would say, is tainted. You don't grow up having a realistic idea of what being a girl is. And for a lot of trans girls in the beginning of the transition, they will um, portray this... Um, hyperfemininity. Exactly. Which I think hyperfemininity is amazing. I love exploring it. It can also be super political. Exactly. 
when it's done, you know, on purpose, it can be a political choice. But I think also on the trans body, it can be really rebellious and subversive. Mm -hmm. And when you tie your femininity to the male gaze, I think it's very dangerous. And it was a process for me to untie this and relearn what being a woman for myself is, or also for other women, where they think their femaleness limits them and where they define, you know, I found the more I transitioned and the more I was experiencing myself as a feminine being, the more unhappy I was becoming by what it's socially expected by us, you know? That's sad, isn't it? That it's like you realize that actually it's not so great over here. Uh-huh. More recently over the summer, you were posting images of your facial hair mm-hmm. and your Adam's apple and you were trying to kind of connect with or or you are connecting with a more non-binary or gender fluid or queer expression or well, how would you define it? I think I just want to be in touch with my biology in a way that is not shameful and it's honoring. And to me, going through this process of not appealing to the male gaze is extremely liberating and empowering, especially when I spent so many years feeling monstrous about this specific biology traits. That you felt like you were perceived as a monster because mm-hmm. you didn't fit into a gender binary. Yeah. Also because I was seen as something that was male. I think my interest in gender was always to not necessarily become a female or become something in the opposite side of the spectrum, but just not being perceived as a male. I wanted to explore what other ground of the spectrum could I touch, but I knew maleness was not that. But the more I'm coming to terms with what my femininity is, the more I see females with leg hair and the more I see females that have facial hair naturally the more you look into hormonal differences between females and men you realize our discourse around hormonally developing and second type gender characteristics is seen from a very binary lens Mm -hmm. when in reality we all start with a vagina as babies and five weeks old as fetuses as fetuses yeah and five weeks old hormonal cues sign how the genitalia will form so a clitoris becomes enlarged and becomes a penis and ovaries go down and become testicles 1.4 percent of the population exists within this spectrum Mm -hmm. so exists with ambiguous genitalia and that is the same statistics as redheads wow That's so interesting. That's the same statistics as redheads, Mm -hmm. that there's as many in that percentage of 1.4, yeah. 1.4. It's 1.2 to 1.4. And it's very violent, the corrective surgeries on intersex bodies. And we are really, really lacking activism and politics around it because the truth is so many of us are born with ambiguous hormonal traits and Mm -hmm. sex characteristics. Yeah, that's true. It's not just genitalia, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Like it can, can be chromosomes ha- or hormones. And there is females that just have beards and there is men that never grow a beard but have almost like more estrogen. just to clarify, you were born biologically male and started using hormones to transition when you were about 20. Mm-hmm. And last February had face feminizing surgery. Mm-hmm. What made you want to get that surgery? And what was what was your kind of intention with that and your hopes and dreams for that surgery? So facial feminization surgery for trans feminine individuals should not be seen as a cosmetic need, but rather a medical need. If we were given the chance pre-puberty to have therapy and go on testosterone blockers or hormone blockers, your body wouldn't be tainted by a puberty you do not want and then wouldn't develop second type characteristics that you don't want to be associated with, such as a brow bone and a nose in a different angle, a chin and an Adam's apple. Your bones grow bigger. Your voice gets lower, you have more hair, you cannot escape having facial hair, for example. 
your skin feels different. For me, it was a constant reminder of the loss of autonomy I had as a child. It didn't have to do with beauty or how I perceive the social standards of a female should be and how I am operating within them. Yet the dysphoria caused by the lack of autonomy was unbearable. And the gender dysphoria that you experienced was mostly because of your face, you felt. Exactly. And that was expressed through my art a lot. I think the need for anonymity was crucial for me for safety. In the beginning, I didn't want people that knew me to know that I was experimenting with femininity. In my work, I test-drived feminine traits like having longer hair and moving more femininely, posing more femininely. I was really covering my face always. I was anonymous for three years out of my practice, didn't share my face with anyone because I just felt it was a constant battle of a reminder of the loss of autonomy. Like I was misgendered all the time, especially because of my voice. I act a bit tomboyish. I don't really perform necessarily traditionally female. Yeah, your presentation now, I would say, is not when you spoke earlier about kind of the spectrum. I would say that you're not at either end. Mm-hmm. You sort of have a, a queer expression, a kind of very post-human expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we should transcend dualisms and this idea that you have to be one or the other. It's a much healthier approach to your character by allowing yourself to express within a range. Yeah, have like a behavioral range. Mm. The idea would be to kind of transcend or transform the binary completely but because we're in such a binary structured world it's very difficult to do that but going back to your face feminizing surgery you had that in February and how old were you in February? I was 23. And you said initially that you were hiding your face in your art so going back to Greece and experimenting in your bedroom and trying out loads of different outfits and artworks and materials what were you making the masks out of? So I use sculpting and then I make a mold out of the positive to make a negative. I fill the mold with silicone to create a skin-like exoskeleton for myself. So you do it on your own face? I have a cast of my face, which I sculpt on, and then I use the mold that I make to recreate the mask. Thinking about the physicality of your work, how would you describe your masks to someone who'd never seen them before? I would say the masks are equally as much part of my body as a shell is to a crab. Wow, I love that analogy. Yeah, so you see this in nature a lot, especially with animals that have exoskeletons. Hermit crabs, for example, they steal and reuse shells from other animals. Yes, and they scuttle around and find a new one. The exoskeleton, that is when the hard bits of the body are on the outside, right? And Mm -hmm. then, so their skeleton is on the outside and and all the mushy bits are in the middle. Exactly. Whereas we have the skeleton in the middle and all the flesh on the outside. And often what you find with exoskeletons is that the flesh inside outgrows the exoskeleton so you need to shed it and reform it. To me there is something really fascinating with this process especially when you look at hermit crabs. When you look at a hermit crab you imagine the whole animal as one entity when in reality it's made out of two separate objects. So the masks for me were a need for me to transform my body and find a way to reshape it in an organic way and I found using silicone because of its skin-like properties it was the most satisfying medium to use. I think the texture of it and the realism behind it was really important. It feels kind of organic. Exactly it really feels like it's part of your body because you can color match it you can... Which you do perfectly. I mean, it's breathtaking. Your masks are exactly to your skin tone, Mm -hmm. which must be so difficult. Painting a silicone on its own, it's a very fascinating technique. You have to build it up with seven different colors in really low opacity and you overlay them to create this three-dimensional, semi-translucent kind of feel. It's probably my favorite skill out of the making process of making these masks, yeah, painting the silicone. Usually most of them are inspired by animals and bodies in nature that I found beautiful. So a lot of my exploration in the beginning of the development of Anthromorph was the need to feel beautiful. 
As a queer body, the only places I was allowed to feel beautiful when I was young was in nature because there was no feelings of human observation. So a little bit like the digital spaces that you talked about as well, Mm -hmm. that you found these natural places that were deserted and so you didn't have that observation. Yep. But then I guess you used the digital spaces as a place to be observed, but from the safety of your own room. Mm -hmm. And in in nature, even if you're interacting with animals, in nature, mutation is something that is often rewarded. Like evolution is about mutation and a mutated body in nature is not demonized. It's just seen as a new branch of Mm -hmm. the whole. I found a lot of comfort in perceiving myself as an animal rather than a human when I was younger just because human constructs were too rigid for me. So when I began the quest to feel beautiful through my work, natural references came to my mind instantly. So when I was growing up, I thought I was a squid for at least two years. And then I transitioned to becoming an octopus. And I really believed these things as a child. And I guess octopi generally are really changeable. They transform and change a lot. So maybe you were kind of on a deep level connecting with that ability to transform Mm -hmm. and kind of envious of that natural ability to mutate and transform easily. Yeah, I was definitely envious, I think. So the masks, they always reference one element of a natural body or an organic body. In the beginning, it was a lot of animals. So I would do masks with tasks or frills or elements that I found empowering. I've done masks that represent mushrooms and are inspired by urchin textures. I've done masks that are inspired by prehistoric animals because I also spend a lot of time researching bodies and nature on Earth. The, like fossils. Exactly. I think to me there's something really fascinating with prehistoric life forms, plankton. The first forms of life developed on Earth have something very almost like an ancestral pride. I feel like ancestral connected to them somehow. That's Um, so beautiful. I love that. Yeah, so I chose to mimic their shapes into masks. What is really fascinating is that I observe people would see these masks as alien. But I often think as well, the concept of an alien is a human creation, isn't it? What we've created an alien to be in our mind, Mm -hmm. we've based on things that freak us out in the natural world, you know, dinosaurs or creepy sea creatures. So often this idea of alien is that they're kind of already existing on this earth. They're not alien. They're Mm -hmm. they're already here. Yeah, and to not be able to recognize these forms as earthly speaks to me on the disconnection we have with nature as humans. And that's something I explore in my work, the disconnect between human and nature, human technology. There seems to be such a big gap between humans and the natural world and our knowledge of the natural world and the harmonies within it and the ecosystems. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes. And take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. And when was your name Anthromorph born? You use it as an artist's name. Do you go by Anthromorph? I think anthropomorph is more like a visual language. So I would name my practice as anthropomorph. I don't think I relate so much with being that character. It was more of a performance space for me to explore and comment on the topics I was investigating. But the more I'm progressing into my transition and the more I come into myself, I relate more with my human side. Whereas when anthropomorph starts, It was under the name of Constantine, my real name. And then I think one year in, the more I started developing the language and the the progression of the work. So I started by creating collages of bodies from pictures that had transpecies anatomy. And most of them didn't have a face. Again, this idea of like removing the face was really important for me early on to avoid gendering and gender dysphoria from coming up. Anthromorph came very organically as an idea because I realized I wanted to create new language on how someone could identify as a human in our current time. And to me, Anthromorph is a more appropriate name for our species, in my opinion.
opinion because it describes a form that is in the shape of a human rather than a fixed identity that is separate from all other life forms on earth. So in my opinion, life branches out in infinite mutations and has infinite variations of manifestations. It's almost like we are a tree and every leaf has a different face, but we are confusing the leaves as individuals when we could be looking at the whole tree as an individual. So I think anthropomorph allows unification between life forms and doesn't create this dualism between human and nature. Yeah, I'm just looking up. So anthropomorphism is the attribution of human traits, emotions or intentions to non-human entities. You can see that happening in your work. There's the human body, which is actually super important in your work and in your images and the use of masks. Your body is so present in the photographs and the videos that you take. So the humanness of you feels key to the work. But at the same time, the otherness and the, the creatureness of your creations is also key. Exactly. So it's almost like anthro would mean human and morph means shape or figure in Greek. If you translate it word to word would be human figure or like in the shape of a human. Anthromorph. But then your O of the anthro mm -hmm. is a number, the number zero. That was not intentional. That was because social media, like Instagram. I really, uh, yeah, this, I always thought it was intentional. Yeah, no, it actually is not intentional. Uh, exclusive, exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> that was just because anthropomorph was taken. Ah, I thought it was like linking to coding and computing. I was like, oh, it's so amazing. They've put the zero in the middle that uh -huh. like connects the technology in the middle of the body. Uh-huh. So I thought, I mean, it's a happy coincidence, right? Wow, yeah, that's that's, that's very true, actually. Yeah. It makes sense. It, makes it was meant to be. It makes a lot of I think so much of the exploration was about bridging what you said, technology, nature and humanness, because the spaces I tried to film and perform were always natural environments. I take a lot of time to explore nature and find locations in nature where I can film, where there is sometimes no human civilization traits. So you get to see anthropomorph in this natural environment within a digital app that celebrates metropolitan lifestyles and super industrial mm. lifestyles. So you mean the backgrounds to your images and videos that you post on your Instagram account that often it's natural and completely deserted. It might be the sea, it might be a landscape, but then sometimes you also have yourself in very industrial situations as well. There's an amazing image of you standing on like a huge satellite mm -hmm. which is incredible a huge satellite dish that's like facing almost upwards mm -hmm. and you're stood just on the edge of it and you look you know tiny in comparison and you're wearing a mask that has lights mm. so there's this real connection with like advancing technology industrialization it also kind of echoes like the human impact on nature like what is it that we're doing here yeah how are we potentially destroying nature, but how are we also using it to advance technology? Mm -hmm. And how we're terraforming with our activities, because to me, I want to show these really industrial heavy places as equally natural as the 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 deserted organic natural. Exactly. And almost like, you know, these structures, even though they look so artificial to us, they are equally organic as an ant's nest, in my opinion, or a bird's nest. They still use architecture in different ways with different materials to create and terraform environments. Anything that creates their own house you talk a lot in your captions about nature and how humans are potentially destroying these beautiful landscapes and generally our relationship with nature and kind of a human separation from nature that we feel almost like detached from it, particularly when we live in cities, that we kind of forget to reconnect with nature. I think it's really dangerous when you start associating nature as mainly a resource bunker that you can just steal from and like take without thinking there's consequences. We move more ground and minerals from the earth than any other ecological system right now, which is extremely disturbing as a global planetary mechanism and resource distribution system. How do you feel like your artwork 
helped you or impacted on your relationship with your body, your physical body? Mm -hmm. I think it was a crucial element for me, incredibly grounding experience. I don't think I would have managed to transition without the support and strength I gained through the anthrom of performances. Every time I would feel dissociative and disconnected from my body, I would create a new mask that was echoing a part of, of nature that I found beautiful and I would encompass it in my body. That process of beautifying is incredibly self-enriching and really solidified my boundaries within myself. I would say it was almost like a social experiment for me to create this vehicle that I had no reference for. Your body, you mean by your ve that vehicle? Yeah, especially when I was transitioning because the first anthropomorph performances and the first anthropomorph videos are all pre-hormones. So you get to see my anatomy as a male on testosterone and then you get to see me slowly transition under hormonal treatment. So the whole transformation of the body from testosterone-based to estrogen-based has been documented and for me was a crucial way to start reassociating what my body looked like. It was almost like I because of dysphoria, I was so dissociative for my physical appearance until I could wear a mask and limit feelings of observation and then perform instinctively what I wanted to perform. And then taking a minute to see the videos, but see them in an abstract way. So I don't see a face of a boy moving like a girl with long hair. I see this creature doing behaviors that it feels like they feel organic to them. So I think it was crucial for my self-development. It was a key to unlocking behaviors that I was suppressing very hard due to growing up in a queerphobic environment and being forced to undergo a puberty I, didn't want, I did not want and a socialization I did not want. It's so intense to feel so restricted like that. Earlier you said that you, and just thinking about what you just said there about feeling ostracized and othered in that environment, you said you felt monstrous earlier and you mentioned that word and you were using it more in a negative sense, but in a lot of kind of post-human theory and queer theory, there's a sort of reclamation of that word monster and this kind of joyful self-identification as a monster because it's kind of gleefully stepping away from heteronormativity and saying I'm different to you and if you want to refer to me as a monster then so be it and I will celebrate my monstrosity and I wondered if like sometimes a lot of your artwork when you look at your artwork it can be read as monstrous mm -hmm. and it can be read as that sort of celebration of monstrosity and that embracing of monstrosity and I wonder if you would agree with that. I would definitely agree. And I think it was an act of rebellion for me to redefine what my monstrosity meant to me. And something that really helped me with this idea was biblically accurate angels. So when biblical accurate angels appear to people, they say, be not afraid because they were higher dimensional beings that looked nothing like a human. So they would scare a human mind. But angels are like in the collective consciousness and the archetypes we've built. Angels are seen as messengers of light, yet they would terrify some so much they had to say, be not afraid in the beginning and have trust that the receiver would have, you know, an open heart to receive the message that the angel wanted to give. To me, that has a big link to queerness because queerness communicates something very pure, something very like you are in touch with your nature, no matter what social conditioning you've undergone, you cannot escape certain behaviors and drives that you have and interests. And you need to have the receiver, the person that perceives you, to have an open heart in order to receive you, even if to them what you're doing is inappropriate and monstrous and dehumanizing. So you mean anyone that you might come across in, in life, you mean you need them to have that open mind, that open spirit? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there is something, I think it's heavily tied to the male experience. Growing up, being socialized to be a boy, I found that if you were failing to communicate your gender appropriately, your humanness was denied. So men dehumanize each other if they are not portraying traditional gender roles. It was almost like you couldn't be a human if you were not. You didn't fit that norm. Exactly. If you were not a man, you were not a human, which then brings it to question, what do men think of females Mm -hmm. when they inherently fail, you know? Well, they don't match up to the model of man. And it goes back to, I mean, this is kind of deeply humanist thinking where they base the idea of the ideal human on Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci's, nearly said DiCaprio's, <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian man mm-hmm. and his measurements, you know, in the circle and the square. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the picture of the human, the ideal human body. And of course, it's masculine. It's also white, European. And that model of man has been used throughout history and remains a constant. And it's so subliminal, the messaging that comes with that. And it's so constant. It's ingrained in our culture that man is at the top. Mm-hmm. And male-bodied, specifically European male-bodied humans are at the top. And women are othered from that as well. And I think there's quite a lot written about sort of women's bodies being monstrous because they have the ability to grow and morph in pregnancy and then give birth, which is super messy and bloody and unruly. And men were seen, they positioned themselves within humanist thinking as like pure, clean, sealed. Mm-hmm. The body was sealed. It was sealed from the outside world, which is complete fuckery because everybody shits and everybody grows and eats and dies and you know life is messy in anybody Mm -hmm. but yeah the humanist thinking being this kind of creating this very violent idea of dualism between Mm -hmm. like mind and body and also body and nature and also man and woman and this binary structure that our whole language is is based on Mm -hmm. creates this violent discrimination and it positions certain bodies as inferior and certain bodies as superior yeah And the internalizations that come out of being positioned as inferior within this structure is enough to drive people to suicide. It's important to point out 40% of trans individuals would have attempted suicide. Wow, that Uh, much. Yeah, it's so it's a big, it's such a plague in our society. And that's why I think post-humanism discourse discourse has such revolutionary potential because it frees us from a lot of violent structures that go unnoticed but really affect our relationship with the world around us because we become what we are taught we are and what our body is but like if you go from quantum realm to newtonian physics there is such a Like there's not an end between a body and the sky and the air. And water. Yeah. Which Uh, we all drink daily and piss out daily and swim in and it's in this constant circle. 70% of our bodies is made of water, which is constantly exchanged and it's a communal material. So 70% of us is basically has been and is all other life forms on earth. Yeah, we're all drinking each other's piss all the time. Yep. Each other's bodies. Like I could have had all the water you once had in your in your body, in my body. Yeah. And even with your biggest enemy, you have been them at one point. Your ancestors you've been, you've been the dinosaurs, you've been like all material and atoms are communal. The only thing that structures you across space time and separates you would be how maybe your atoms choose to structure themselves in space. But even they get changed even like every seven years. I think your whole body has transformed. Yes. Yeah. And then if you take into account all the different bacteria and microorganisms that exist within our biome, we become a whole universe by ourselves that you realize like such a tiny amount of material is you. It's insane. I mean, wow, you just put that so well. Yeah. But when you think of it like that, it's so sublime because it completely overwhelms your brain. And that is why 
I advocate for harmony within nature and really prioritizing our politics within a model that honors natural resource distribution systems. We should honor the algae that provide the oxygen we breathe. We should honor the forests that create their own rain. The Amazon right now is being cut into such degree that it's unable to produce the rain it needs to feed back itself. So a lot of areas are drying out and there is all this natural resource redistribution systems in nature that echo a human body. You would say that, you know, like veins are rivers or... Yeah. And even with technology as well, you can see like a motherboard and certain patterns in technology imitate patterns found in nature. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about your art now, because Mm -hmm. since you had your face feminizing surgery, Anthromorph previously was always masked. And then you revealed your face and you you kind of moved over to a different Instagram account, which is Conos. Mm -hmm. You revealed your face in this way that felt like a really big move and a big deal. Mm -hmm. And you started your art shifted at the same time. You started creating things, digital collages and silicone wearables that are kind of like gills Mm -hmm. that you can wear around your neck or around your boobs or chest. And I wondered if you could talk to us a bit more about kind of your transformation as an artist and transitioning Mm -hmm. towards this different kind of form of artwork. Mm -hmm. I think it was time for, it, it happened very organically. I think Anthromorph was from the beginning of its creation to now, there's such a transformation to my human identity that it just was not needed for me anymore to perform that character. I felt I had a self to perform. So I wanted to explore that. And that took me very back in my mind to when I was a kid growing up online, um, playing with makeup and posting pictures online, because again, it was a way for me to explore performativity in a controlled setting. So the way I relate to my work now would be for I want to create sculptural pieces that are not, not wearable only. So they're not limited to when someone is having them on their body and performs them. I would like to do sculptural work that mimics like ancient Greek statues that kind of documented ideal forms of bodies in the past. But I want to do this with a posthuman lens and perspective where trans bodies, bodies with disabilities would be celebrated and would have transspecies anatomies because b- bridging the human condition to the natural world is very important for me. So you're going to create human-sized sculptures mm-hmm. which echo Greek sculpture. Exactly. But they're entangled with trans identities and differently abled bodies and trans species. That's amazing. Yeah, while still maintaining this um, skin-like textures, colors. So it'd be silicone. Yeah, different colors. I want to explore different variations of mutant bodies. And I have been exploring actually adding organic materials in this sculpture. So butterfly wings or naturally grown horns and things like that. Wow, that sounds amazing. Where can people find it and go and see it? It will be in gallery spaces. So I want to transition from exhibiting my work online unless it's in a metaverse setting or in like a virtual space that I am in control of. I am transitioning away from using social media as a platform to legitimize my work. Or, or like exhibit there because in the past Instagram was and Tumblr and other image-based social media was democratic you know you could put yourself there you could expose yourself there and explore your social body no matter with no guidelines which created authentic human extensions of self Whereas now, all discourse created through Instagram comes from a very tight and restrictive algorithm. So I think that cannot anymore portray a realistic expression of art because of the heavy... um, Capitalist control. Exactly. So... I don't feel inspired to use this platform. I don't call it a legitimate social dimension of our body anymore when it used to be. 
It's such a shame that it's, I mean, I do think something, you know, maybe something else will be created that will, I know people are using TikTok more, but I think that that's got its own problems. But it is a shame that Instagram has kind of become such, quite such a corporate machine now that it's, and it also does a lot of queer shadowing where lots of queer, exactly. queer individuals and queer accounts get hidden and not given the exposure. Exactly. Which is massive when you're an artist trying to sell art and trying to make a living through your art that your account is getting hidden. But it also goes to shows with how are we allowed to create discourse? In what spaces are we allowed to create discourse? Because if you're not given space in institutions, we only had online to turn. Like I was raised by trans elders online passing on their knowledge. Now it's shadow bound. I cannot access this information the same way and younger kids won't be able to access information. And it just, again, denies a part of society that once found a voice, but now is rejected from these spaces the same mm. way it's rejected from the physical spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, before we finish, I would like to ask you, well, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that we have been filmed, we're being filmed by a documentary crew who are here filming you, making a documentary about you and your life and your art. What can we expect from this documentary? When do you think it will be available? And what parts of your life will we see? So we have documented the last year. You will see a lot of the trans transformation I underwent and also the progression of my work. We will be filming for the next year, I'm pretty sure. So the final documentary will probably be out in a year or two years. So watch this space. Exactly. But it's very exciting and I think I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have this platform in order to showcase my ideas more. And I think it's very important for someone that underwent transition in a not so traditional way and hasn't adhered to strict heteronormative binaries to have the opportunity to share their story. Mm -hmm. And I think that what that can do for individuals who are feeling like they don't fit in or feeling like they don't fit into a particular gender norm, I think that will be just completely invaluable for them. Mm -hmm. And like you said, 40% of trans individuals either attempt or commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And so even that could save people's lives, couldn't it? If, if they realize they're not alone. Yeah, I found through my work that the power of representation is unfathomable. Un unfathomable. Un unfathomable. Uh, unfathomable. <laughs> It's a tricky um, one. <laughs> yeah. Um, just creating positive. That's why it was so revolutionary and important for me to showcase myself with a bulge and boobs. Yes. And that's hair. a good point, actually. You have, so you wear sort of flesh colored underwear and you sometimes will pose topless but blur out your nipples mm -hmm. because of the censoring on Instagram. And your genitalia bulge is like really evident. Yep. And that is a really powerful act, I think. And that it was something that I couldn't do before my facial feminization surgery. Like it was, it would terrify me for someone to see my bulge without a mask. But as soon as I wore a mask, because the feelings of observation were eliminated, I could access this very empowering image, which it was a feedback loop because it ended up encouraging me, like making me proud of my biology. But then I would have countless of messages telling me, thank you so much, like this It just it gives me so much hope about my body and so much love about my body and my biology. It was definitely something hard to do, but intentional. And I know because I've seen it, authentic representations of bodies can change society. Yeah, it's radical. It's really radical to show your body in that way. There were statues in ancient Greek, in ancient Hermaphrodite? Greece. Yes. Yeah. And more statues that have been destroyed under colonialism and Christian colonialism and English colonialism and like all destroyed this. the evidence. Yeah. And that is why really investigating human nature and your own personal beliefs on human nature is so important because we need to realize in such a small period of time, we have drastically transformed what human nature is. And so many people are confused right now because their nature is not being listened to. Mm. So would you say that you are posthuman? I think, yeah. 
I think my relationship to gender and my relationship to other beings around me and my understanding of where my body ends and where the world begins makes me post-human because I navigate the world thinking I am as much of the trees I see around me as much as other people I see around me. I don't see my body disconnected from everyone else. And I have a strong belief that Earth as a planet as a whole is one multicellular organism. So I believe as individual bodies, we are unicellular organisms that join together to create a multicellular body. And all of us have specifications. And the more we specialize, the more complex the body becomes. And you see this being portrayed in the, you know, how nature thrives in biodiversity. The human body thrives because we have developed such complex, different individual organisms like You have your neuron and then you have your gut cells. Like they both do something completely different. But by selflessly, communally working together, they give life to a self, like an individual self. Mm. Uh, but that only comes to be through multicellularity and specification and individualism. Like a skin cell will never be able to relate to a neuron cell, but somehow they create one entity. Mm, somehow it works. Yeah. So we're all post-human. I think so. But I think we should go back to opening our idea of where our body stops and realize Earth as a planet is a multicellular organism. When you say this, where your body stops and the world begins, there's no stop, it's there, there's no divide. It's all this one living, breathing organism. Exactly. Yeah. I could talk to you for hours and hours. Likewise. It's been such a fascinating conversation and your art is really incredible. I find it very moving and interesting and I feel like you delve deep into post-humanism and post-human theory in a way that it feels very informed and very embedded, but at the same time supernatural and playful. So it feels like it's got this depth, this intellectual depth, but at the same time it's super playful and accessible and just like beautiful. Thank you. And we're looking forward to watching your documentary. Thank you for having me. It's always nice to be able to talk to you and have your academic knowledge and bounce back. Like, I can talk to you for hours as well. <laughs> me too. Well, hopefully we can another yeah. time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bodies in the Post with Constantine Semiramis, also known as Anthromorph on Instagram. Thank you also to Constantine for being involved and for speaking so eloquently and beautifully about your art and life experiences. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, please follow the show and be up to date with new guests and episodes. 